Today we're going to talk about Chinese history in South Africa. We're going to talk to a guy, among others, we've got two guests who are popping by, but Mr. Walter Pon is a third-generation South African-born Chinese. It is time for Episode 2 of How's It China? This is How's It China with Cliff Central and China Plus. Download the podcast on the Cliff Central website, app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to talk to Professor Catherine Munro, who is the chairman of the Johannesburg Heritage Foundation and an honorary associate professor at Wits University School of Architecture and Planning. And as I mentioned, Mr. Walter Pon, a third generation South African born Chinese. We'll talk to them about the history of Chinese people in South Africa and all the interesting things associated with that. Professor Munro, what a pleasure to meet you. How are you? Thank you. Well, thanks. Very, very good. Great to be with you. So Johannesburg has all these layers like an onion and you peel off the layers and you find more and there's so much interesting stuff going on. The, the history of the Chinese people in South Africa is a, is a fascinating discussion all on its own. And Pumi and I thought we would, we would get you in studio to talk to you a little bit about this this morning. Um, what can you tell us about the origins of the, of the story of China and South Africa? Well, the great draw card was indeed gold. Yes. Everybody came to Johannesburg in the earliest of days because of gold. There was the anticipation that there would be this gold mountain. Um, and of course, uh, very often people didn't know whether they were going to be coming to San Francisco and California or coming to Johannesburg. And uh, so you did have everybody being attracted, and the Chinese were simply one of the nationalities, and that was the earliest origins of Chinese people who put down deep and long-term roots, uh, as did other immigrant communities from the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, but, of course, from the very earliest date, they did face considerable prejudice. Sure, as um, many groups in South Africa did, right? And um, they had to then accommodate themselves. But the Chinese then did settle in uh, Ferreira's town, and what's remarkable about the Chinese is that the first Chinatown is still there in Ferreira's town. Take yourself down the bottom end of Commissioner Street right. and you will find those traces. It's not a very large community. It isn't like, I mean, I always got associations with Los Angeles yeah. or San Francisco. Very much bigger and more prominent Chinatowns there. But... Incredibly, um, Johannesburg has two Chinatowns, a more recent Chinatown, which has developed since 1994 in uh, Cyril Dean, down Derrick right. Avenue. Yes, of course. Completely different community, different routes. And um, as uh, Walter will tell you, and I see he's just walked in. Yep. Um, morning, Mr. Pan. How are you? Hi, morning. Very nice morning. to see you. We we're welcome, welcoming you and uh, Professor Monroe here this morning to talk to us about all of this interesting stuff. So you were saying, as he was, yeah, as he will no doubt testify, that, that yeah. in fact there is, there are different components, and of course the Chinese presence in South Africa is also a reflection of what was happening in China. Um, why did people come here? Because they hoped for a better life at different points in time. Right. But South Africa then had official, remember this in our histories, had official connection with Taiwan. That's right. That was, uh, there's this difference between communist China and nationalist China. 
and that presence in China was recognized as Taiwan for many years. That's right. But it's been since 1994 that the recognition has switched to mainland China. And the connections have very considerably strengthened with uh, literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese. Where's your old Chinese community comprised? How many people, Walter? Dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. Mm. Really? Mm. Tiny, probably, tiny numbers. Probably nearer to six, seven thousand. Wow, really? The tiny Where proportion. You're looking at a few hundred thousand of more recent Chinese. Right. You know, Professor Monroe, I think a couple of years ago was the first time that I realized that Chinese people in South Africa were also classified as non-white. When when the Cecil, uh, when the first Cecil share. Um, offering was done because they they were included in in that share offering and yes, then we I, were. and and for the first time realized that Chinese people in South Africa also had this lesser status even though a lot of them came here looking for a better life. Right, the Chinese people did face considerable disadvantages and were regarded as Asiatics mm-hmm. along with Indian people. So often Indian people. Combined with Chinese interests It's quite interesting that Gandhi in his uh, Struggle for human Rights in uh, 1907 When you had the issues of of Registration and what do you do about Bringing wives across and what do you do about Opening businesses and right you have to Have your fingerprints taken And you need to carry a pass Right all of these Factors were issues Around which both Chinese and Indian concerns coalesced mm. and became politicized. And initially it was Gandhi taking on what was then the Transvaal government, because again, there's all these layers of history. Mm. Who's actually in charge? And the anticipation was that when South Africa became a union of the four provinces, that there would be dispensations, recognitions, an easier situation. That didn't Happen until, and this was where Gandhi developed his um, passive resistance approach. Mr. Pan, I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you were actually born in Sophia Town. Yes. Born and bred South African. Born and bred South so African. Who, who was the first? Who was the first of your ancestors to come here? Your grandfather. My, my grandfather came here before the Boer War. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you, you. That's a long history. <laughs> so, you, I mean, you're, so, you're South African then through and through in terms of like three generations of presence Very much. here. But tell me about how that experience has changed for Chinese South Africans over the years. But, uh, funny thing though, my grandfather came here in spite of him coming here. If it wasn't for the Japanese war, we probably wouldn't be here in South Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah, that Why? Was because in the 1937, 38, my father, had his own school in Canton. Oh yeah. No, he's a, he, he's a, he's all academic. So is my mother, and so he had his own school until the Japanese came, and of course they had to run for their lives, throwing bombs and and so on. And they decided to come here. Well, then my father, my because my grandfather was here, uh, he had message that I don't know. Even in spite of the great distance, he got message that Pretoria. Chinese school was looking for a teacher principal. 
So you say, well, why don't you apply? And you got the job. And then that brought them back. But yes. I mean, that's interesting. So there was, there was always this connection between China and here. And, and, and your immediate, your, your father and mother were actually in China, but then decided yes. to come and rejoin your grandfather. Yes. yes. And, and your experience then of, of growing up in South Africa during the time that Professor Munro and Pumi are talking about now, where there was uh, a system of classification of people and Chinese people were considered non-white and therefore had a different uh, set of rules and laws applied to them. I mean, do you remember any of that from your from Well, your of course. Let's put it straight. We are non-whites, okay? Yeah, no, well, <laughs> but uh, in the classification, they have different class of non-whites. Uh, we had a little bit better, uh, maybe were a small in number. But on the other hand, uh, the blacks probably had heard the worst of it, mm. and so did the uh, Indians and coloreds. We, I think, because of a small smaller number, socially we were very much accepted in the bigger cities. Oh wow. But not in Pretoria. Pretoria is where, where predominantly Afrikaners were. And th- there was more discrimination there? Oh, very much, very much. What was the Chinese community like at the time when, when you were a, a teenager? Well, to start off with, you can't go to a white school mm. until uh, the Catholics under Bishop Boyd and uh, uh, Father Tui decide we must have the Chinese. They broke the law and admitted the, chi- the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So the convents except the girls, and uh, the Maris brothers, Sacred Heart now, they, they took on the, the boys. And even though they were threatened for closing the shop, uh, closing uh, the school, the school uh, they decided to take on us. Wow. What was the, what was the, the primary business of most people in the, in the Chinese community at that well, stage? Well, at the time, the 90% or even 95% all had shops. Shops. Yes. Because as Professor Monroe said earlier, the, the allure of mining was what brought so many here, but then ultimately they ended up settling into other areas of industry. Well, actually, um, sorry, Professor, you want to tell us about mining? Yes. Yes, go uh, ahead. I, I think we do have to make a distinction between the Chinese people who came and indeed opened shops and tried to develop a normal life, uh, and uh, this is what happened, and hence the origins of Chinatown. And then that uh, period, a very curious period, uh, from 1903 to roughly 1910, when the mining industry, after the Anglo-Boer War, uh, decided to import Chinese laborers, as though they were a commodity. Hmm. And this was to get the mines going again after the Anglo-Boer War, and this was spearheaded by uh, Rand Mines, uh, um, Herman Eckstein and Company, and it was 1903-1904. It required considerable, you can imagine, uh, agreement all round. You had to have recruiters going out into China and recruiting men, and they brought in something like 60,000 Chinese laborers. But these people, because that was an episode, Mm. and they were then repatriated, particularly as it became a political issue. Although today everybody thinks, aha, the Chinese miners are important, and you see they were rather exotic, and you see them in early postcards, and this has been revived and brought about a 
quite a lot of interest. These people made a very important but a temporary contribution to South Africa's economic revival um, and did not then put down roots. Maybe mm. one or two escaped mm. the yeah. rules and uh, having to go back by ship and so on. But you can say as a whole, it wasn't a permanent presence in China from that group. You've got to go back earlier or later to mm. look for the Chinese who came to South Africa and became South Africans. And, and, yeah, and, and settled here. But I think the, the one thing that is so distinct about Chinese culture is anywhere you go around the world, it's so well preserved within that community. And even here in South mm-hmm. Africa, when you do go down to, to Chinatown, my son and I go down there, <laughs> Chinese New Year, we go down there, mm. fireworks, and it's... It, and the restaurants, obviously, but it's so well preserved. And also, when you go to Cyrildine, it's like a little China in the middle of Cyrildine. It's it's how has it, has it a, a character all of its own, right? How and do we know you Johannesburg is an interesting place, but really, that these I think can, it adds to the interest of Johannesburg. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You how does the community was, do that, Walter? Haven't you been called the um, the unofficial mayor of Chinatown? <laughs> yeah, that is, that is so. That's what I'm known, known as. Going back to the miners, there's two points I'd like to make. I believe they saved the mining industry because mm-hmm. at that time, nobody was prepared to work. So mm-hmm. someone got a very clever idea. Why don't you bring in the Chinese? They are hardworking. And true, of course. But uh, the, the the people who came from China, from Shandong, those are the big, tall, strong ones. Not, <laughs> not like a south, 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 southerners. And they came over here most of them all went back. In fact, uh-huh. it was contract workers, so they should have all went back. But like Professor said, some did manage to escape, and I believe they got assimilated with the uh, blacks and colors uh-huh. because in that era of time, there were hardly uh, many Chinese around anyway. Mm. That's interesting. They were a distinct group of people, and they did, even as miners, preserve their own culture. Uh, they were interested in Chinese medicine, in Chinese opera. This is mine workers putting on an opera, celebrating the Chinese New Year. Uh, These are all things that we have captured in uh, images of the time. But it was also a shock. Very often, as they were large men, they were expecting to work on open cast mines. Uh, Coal mining had been their experience. There had been Chinese indentured laborers going into Russia. Now, yeah. that's the background. When they came to South Africa, you go for underground deep, mining. Deep in the and uh, that's a very different story. Um, you need uh, sophisticated technology and also a great deal of muscle power. And much smaller people. Not necessarily. No, 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 no. But you certainly needed men prepared to work hard. There's a lot of physical, hard physical labor involved in extracting the the rock containing the mine ore and crushing it and that was a process that took place and it did happen over several years and they made a very important contribution i hear that they 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 were very uh, conditions living conditions were very poor yeah and mm. they suffered tremendously. Mm. Um, funds were then remitted to their families in China. That was part of the the deal. Mm. Um, 
in that way. Of course, politically, this was considered to be, mm, is this such a smart idea to bring in another group of people? You'd had Indian indentured laborers who'd settled as a result of the sugar uh, plantations. Now you're adding another mix of laborers in large numbers. Do you really want this to happen? And so it became a political issue, and ultimately it brought about the fall of the Campbell-Bannerman government in England in 1906, Mm. and the Transvaal regains its independence, and they say, nope, okay, Chinese laborers, end of that experiment. It's an experiment, in inverted commas, and um, we're going to find another way. And, of course, they were then did indeed then go for recruiting black laborers Right throughout southern Africa, as far as Malawi. Right. That was a, a, the organization of the Vidvatshan, um, native, um, recruitment labor organization. Um, it was a, and of course, you know, you brought in mine laborers from all over Africa. But while we're, but, while we're talking about geography, I just want to ask Walter, wh- where else in South Africa are there concentrations of, of Chinese population? Besides Johannesburg, yes, would besides be Port Elizabeth. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yes. Mm. Port Elizabeth, in relation, in comparison to the population in Port Elizabeth, they are big numbers, big percentage. Is there a, a historical a reason, reason for that? Reason for that? Is it perhaps because it was just a port city? And I, I mean, I would expect Durban Actually, to have done the something, same. Something I never got into. Hmm. Um, I think that Durban was far less hospitable when you think about oh. its Indian background. Port Elizabeth was was a welcoming place. Um, I have a Chinese friend whose grandmother recalled landing in Port Elizabeth and being surprised that she had to walk an awful long way uh, <laughs> to. She'd come as a bride in the 1920s from oh. China. And that was the start of that particular Mm. Chinese family. We're talking about Durban, sorry. Uh, Funny though, of all the population, Joburg and Pretoria were often very similar. Mm. Uh, They they come from Pretoria, Joburg, wherever they can find a shop. But uh, Port Elizabeth, next population, Durban, very small. Cape Town, very small. Mm. So it's concentrated mainly in Witwatersrand. And then Port Elizabeth. Mm. At Durban, they use it as stepping. Stepping. They get off Durban and they all come to Joburg. Huh. Sure. And growing up here in South Africa, you were still very much. Um, you've kept your traditions, kept the identity of being a Chinese person. How does the Chinese community get that right? What is it that they get right in making sure that they're able to preserve their culture, but also pass it on to the next generation? Well, on that part, I would say partly is due to the apartheid laws because mm. they encouraged people to stick to themselves. So we had no choice. So like, d- apartheid laws made it, uh, it almost created like a bubble. Well, what happens is here, they encourage everybody to stick to themselves. Mm. So you have the blacks to themselves, the colors to themselves, Indian to themselves, and Chinese. We didn't have an area, all right? But so, so lots, lots of us had shops in the black areas, Town, uh, uh, Alexander, Sapphire Town, Nuclear. Hmm. My father had, a, my grandfather had a shop in La Rochelle, and there were quite oh. a few Chinese in the southern suburbs there, Rosettenville, La Rochelle, Turfentine. I remember there were quite a few Chinese shops there. In fact, um, my memory serves me, most of the shops in an era were probably owned by Chinese shops in the sub- white suburbs. Wow. 
sort of, I mean, oh, they, the, from, a, from a commercial point of view, probably yes. was a bit of a, 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 an arterial system, I mean, in terms of trade, because yes. Johannesburg's only 100 years old, and for those shops to have been established at the beginning of, of the last century, um, they, they must have had a, a, a big in, impact on trade and on, on general commerce in the area. I think it broadens the range of goods that's available. Um, I think that it was also Chinese people and their shops were very competitive. Mm. We do see this again today. This is is still happening. You have interesting goods being sold of all kinds. I own, and I showed Walter uh, this piece of furniture, a a Chinese kiss made out of cedar wood, magnificently carved. It was a gift, a wedding gift. To my mother-in-law in 1938, and it's still in our family, and it's still a much-loved possession. And it was, I think, one of the objects that got me interested in collecting beautiful Chinese things. And, and so I've always been in love with Chinese ceramics, porcelain, yeah. um, carvings, cloisonne, um, jewelry, uh, jade. Uh, there's Coffee. such a rich culture um, there uh, that is expressed physically in the objects that have come to us. I um, think this is this is wonderful. Pro- professor, you're talking of uh, uh, the the camphor kiss, uh, porcelain, figurines, mm? Chinese vase, the, the one you had in your house, the cloisonne. That's something which we used to we used to have two three shops. Two and three shops in Johannesburg selling to the whites, uh-huh. and, and they, that, that they was probably it. where they bought those. They they they, they love somebody. Love it. Mm. Now your family business is still going. Yes, this is now third generation of the business as well. But, uh, my parents started in 1943. Yes, but I mean, effectively, your grandfather was also a shopkeeper, <laughs> so you could claim that it was three generations of business. Oh yes, yeah. well, or he's a different. He has a grocery shop. Okay, mm. we had a gift shop. That's amazing. Mm. So. I do, though, want to share with our listeners um, Walter's vision, which I fully support as Johannesburg Heritage, and that is that um, we should together develop a memorial garden, a museum that people can enjoy down in First Chinatown. Mm. Uh, There's a great opportunity. There's a lot of land that is not being used. Mm. But there are also streets that are no longer being used. And we would love to see a, a museum developed as a memorial garden, recalling all the elements and components of the Chinese presence and history in South Africa and those important ties between China in its various dimensions and South Africa. Well, why don't you, Walter, just tell us about some of the the people who've been such an important part of Johannesburg history. I believe that you are trying to commemorate the history of the Chinese in South Africa, and you've got a list of people and and a number of episodes in in our history which are worth telling stories about. I mean, give us some idea of this, even if it's just one or two people. Well, there's a, there's a certain, uh, in those days, Chinese being uh, segregated, we were a very close community. We were not open to the outside society besides ourselves. Well, there were very little, little contact 
outside the Chinese community. As, as a result, uh, we had lots of problems. Uh, take per, uh, um, business, for example. In the old days, uh, commission and Edel, for example, is the place. Okay, mm-hmm. If you want to buy a shop or rent a shop there, no go. Yeah, so you couldn't uh, go into the no, obvious areas. No, no. So, um, but subsequently, then they decide to give us a permit. But that permit doesn't come by easily. Now, if you want to buy a property or rent a property, a rent a property, uh, you have to apply for a permit. It can take months, even a year. Now, no landlord's prepared to, uh, even though you're prepared to pay the rental for it, once an empty shop for that length of period of time. So that 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 that, that fell away. Uh, we were discriminated. Um, hospitals. It was only after m- various. Uh, incidents. Now, I'm to- talking about person. The Chinese consulate in those days, um, all right, China, South Africa didn't recognize Communist China. Mm-hmm. For that matter, Communist China, after, I'm talking about the early 50s and so on. Right. Uh, it was the Republic of China. That's right. Now, Repu- just to go back a little bit, Republic of China came along in 1912. All right. Then, then the World War and the Civil War. 1949, the Communists. Uh, took over and Republic of China as Professor called it Taiwan uh, went to Taiwan Formosa, Taiwan and now um, our uh, our community here had lots to do with the Consul General and subsequently the Embassy we had to rely on them to go to the government to fight for our rights and so on now they did lots and lots for us if it wasn't for them we wouldn't have achieved what we had then uh, take going to the hospital for example uh, I remember my um, all the times for the matter you had if you went um, hospital you're either private or you go to uh, coronation well maybe but mainly coronation so where the standard of medicine very poor Med- m- 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 doctors very, very or, uh, ordinary and very poor yes so uh we suffered a lot. It was only after there was an incident where a Chinese guy had a uh, ride a motorbike, which mm-hmm. I'll call a two-wheel coffin. He had an accident, and someone called an ambulance. A, a white ambulance came along. The guy said, "No, he's he's a non-white." So oh. he went back. He went back and called the black one. A black ambulance came along. He says, "No, he's not black." So this poor guy lying in lying in lying in the street, and no one take care of him. Mike, now, uh, there were many instances, similar instances of this sort, and then subsequently, uh, a Chinese consul on our behalf protest. Okay, they say, okay, you can go to general hospital, but quietly in the corner, okay? Oh, Don't wow. make noise, okay? Still keep so, it, keep yeah, it so uh, we had a private ward of our own, and you keep quietly in the corner. And that's, and then of course, then the incident about going into, uh, um, public places like cinema, mm-hmm. cinema, and mm-hmm. uh, no, sorry, um, swimming pool rather. Oh, yes. uh, talking of cinemas, because we are in Johannesburg, uh, I remember I, I went to the Colosseum, Metro, uh, Empire, no, no problem. But swimming pools, no? No, no. Uh, socially, we very much accepted, even I remember nightclubs and so on. There was no problem. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about the bigger cities, but not in the smaller, not, not in the smaller places. Pretoria, no, no go. Take Pretoria, for example. Uh, where, where does Andre White came along with? Japan, in those days, had a lot of business with uh, South Africa, mm-hmm. iron ore and so on. So because they were temporary here, uh, they were given white status. 
Now this Jap- Japanese guy, uh, so this Chinese guy, um, no, sorry, go back to the Japanese person went to uh, ride a tram or bus, whatever, and he was kicked off. Sure. And of course, Jap- Japanese consulate protested. protested. And then they say, well, how do I know whether he's a Japanese or Chinese? <laughs> So uh, that, that, that was that was one of the one of the reasons I believe that was one of the reasons why we were given the, uh, uh, the Chinese from then onwards had the, enjoyed the, the, that little status. Oh wow! So because of more racism, you <laughs> ended up with less. But <laughs> you could get on the tram. It's quite an extraordinary concept to be called an honorary white. Isn't it ridiculous? <laughs> I mean, you think about it now. This really is just madness. Now, what about the, the current um, community here in South Africa? And, and you mentioned Cyril Dean earlier, which is a very mm. vibrant neighborhood. There's a lot going on there. As Pumi says, it's a great place to be for Chinese New Year. There's some marvelous restaurants. There's some terrific places to go and visit. But what is, what is the, the, the differentiating factor now? And, and if you compare it historically, Professor, with the, the mm. kind of Chinatown that we had in the beginning in Ferrerestorp, what, th- what's the main main difference? I think uh, different languages, Cantonese, Mandarin, um, the the longer roots, the South African identity. Yeah. The older Chinese people are South African. Mm. Uh, the newer Chinese people, perhaps not quite so much. It's going to take them another generation. Although, of course, we see this presence in the Oriental city, which we have uh, down yes. at Bruma, for example. Um, I was there a few weeks ago and was buying some lovely uh, Chinese beads and the mother couldn't speak English, but the daughter could and she was heading for UCT. She got a place um, to study medicine. Have the and puns got that's another going to make for integration. Have the puns got another generation coming? Uh, that are here in South Africa? Unfortunately not. Have, have they gone elsewhere? Yes. Okay. Oh. That, of course, is again part of everybody becoming worldwide citizens. Absolutely. Mm. If be able you to have move the education, and I think the Chinese, part of preserving their culture has been the emphasis on education. Mm. If you have education, you're actually equipping yourself to move everywhere. And there is a brain drain from Africa. Because of this now, we're seeing this repeat racism in another direction. To say, well, maybe you're not quite so welcome. And people, yes, of course, people think in a self-interested way because it's about preservation of themselves and their families. And I think that is regrettable because I believe that we can make something of South Africa into the future if we accept that so many different cultures have a contribution to make. Uh, what, what do you think the, the major contribution has been of, of the Chinese community to South Africa and vice versa? What has South Africa contributed to you and to your family? And, and what do you think that that, that overlap is in, in terms of, of a value exchange? Well, mainly the contribution that Chinese made here would mainly be in the trade. Take um, right up to the 80s, then the Taiwan came around. Taiwanese came around, mm-hmm. opened over 260-something factories. Can you imagine opening 265 factories, the goods they produce for local consumption mm-hmm. and even for exporting? 
and some even came over here for a reason. When you're in Hong Kong and China, I believe you can't export things to the states and other countries easily. Whereas uh, come over here and open a factory, it's mainly in South Africa. So along those lines, in that period of time, the Taiwanese did, did very well. And, and massive industries. Yes, 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 yes. The uh, the contribution to has come in opening South Africa to the possibilities of importing commodities from China in a competitive way, sharpening South Africa's own competitive drive Absolutely. in manufacturing. Thinking about, well, how have the Chinese succeeded so so well with sustaining those high growth rates in a communist system that since obviously since 1949 and now have has adapted uh, through the years and that they have had this industrialization drive which becomes a model for South Africa so i think trade has been important i think um investment in uh, factories um, I think, too, in education. Yeah. Uh, there has been a model here. The the fact that you have an extremely cultured, uh, literate community um, that prides itself on ensuring that their children are educated in schools and, and overcoming all the difficulties of segregation. Well, and speaking of schools, I mean, your dad came to teach at the Chinese school yes. in Pretoria, but yep. we also have a Chinese school here in Johannesburg. Well, uh, on this point here, my father was Pretoria school. Mm. My mother was Johannesburg Chinese school. Oh, wow. Until they decided to open Suing Home. That's the business, family business. Right. Mm-hmm. But there is... There, There's there are, still a Chinese school in Johannesburg. Uh, unfortunately, no. 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 Oh, the only school we have are the, what we call the weekend Chinese schools. Well, to tell the story of the Chinese school, because I'm fascinated. All right, going back to the trade, what contribution... We'll, we'll go back to school in a minute. Talking of the uh, contribution, uh, the trade, Taiwanese came open factories. Then in the 90s... And the flood of the mainland Chinese came. Real flood. For whatever reason, they came over here for greener pastures, and they all did well. To start off with, they were selling in the streets. In those days, it was very uh, peaceful, and there was no problem as far as crime, minimal. Mm. That's crime all the time, but minimal. They they sold their wares. They brought the Chinese goods from uh, uh, Chinese goods from China. They have that direct uh, access to it, mm-hmm. and they were selling the streets. Of course, the blacks weren't very happy because that, that's traditionally that's where they sell. Yeah. But then, of course, we had problems there as well too because they were competing. Mm. And then um, that was the beginning of it. Then they slowly found that, wow, we're doing well here. But why selling the shops? Or why not in the shops? Selling the street is so inconvenient. You've got to move the or we have good weather here, but you can do so much and no more. You have to but pack now, up every day. Yes. Every yeah. night. So they, they, they start to open the shop. Then this is where the beginning of the malls coming along. Mm. Now, the, now presently there's probably about half a dozen of these malls. Majority is all manned by the Chinese. And all of a sudden, all Chinese were importers. In those days, in the early days, about 50s, 60s, there was only three, four of us importing Chinese goods. Because in those days, there was a restriction importing goods, what they call import permit. And not everybody can uh, can import goods as, as freely as they would like to. So we, between the three, four of us, we had a monopoly. Until when it opened up, 
the black government took over, then we were, we, well, I wouldn't say we went out of business. All of a sudden, we had lots of competition because every Chinese shopkeeper was importing goods. Right. Mm. So suddenly it was much more evenly distributed. Yes, and not only that, uh, in those days, you won't find any Chinese in free state because in the, the year, the previous government, uh, free state was a no-go. That's right. Weren't the, the Free State banned all Indian and Chinese people yes, from yes, ever yes. settling there? Right? There was only one guy. These peculiar. <laughs> there was only one laws. guy. Yes, one family there. Uh, why one family? He was a uh, kung fu expert, <laughs> <laughs> so they needed him, and uh, he was stationed in Sesselburg. He taught the police kung fu. We wow. don't want Chinese people here, but we want your kung fu. But the one guy, yeah. <laughs> we want your kung fu. <laughs> yes, I, I think two South Africans have come to be much more accepting, more open, more mm. knowledgeable about what China has to offer. I do think films and the martial arts taught us a great deal about the rest of the world, uh, the opportunity to travel. Um, I think the world is open to South Africa, and as a result, there has been a greater acceptance. Mm-hmm. I do think the Chinese in South Africa, the next generation, are simply South Africans. Mm-hmm. They do all sorts, journalists, mm-hmm. accountants, mm-hmm. doctors. Uh, the emphasis has been the route to personal development through education, mm-hmm. which is Prof, a great… Prof, we talked about Kung Fu. I, I read with interest last week… Um, Okay, maybe it was due to Councillor Michael, uh, Michael Soon. He's our President yes. Johannesburg. Uh, what do they call him? Huh. Council General. Cons- no, no, no. Uh, he's MMC for oh, yes. safety. safety. That's right. Michael, yes. Oh, yes, yes, Michael yes, yes, yes. Sun. Yes. Okay, yeah. uh, he pronounces Soon. Soon. Yes. Uh, uh, he's in charge of the police and ambulance. Yes, safety. Yes, and he, together with embassy, brought in some Kung Fu instructors. <laughs> Did you read the newspaper last week? Teaching <laughs> the <laughs> teaching the the police That's what fantastic. you do. Now this is uh, without without um, without weapons, mm. right? When confronted, how do you tackle them? Right. Now talking of kung fu, then this is putting it putting. By the way, this was paid for all by the Chinese government. Wow! You can see the closeness. That's amazing. Mm. The, you see, the trade has brought over over, like I was saying, every shop its own or run by the Chinese in the various malls. Until the recent development, uh, things hasn't been going so smoothly. The rate of exchange for the Chinese RMB, the Chinese Union, has, has gone very bad or very good, which way, it depends on which way you look at it. So, um, a little, few years ago, when, when, what attracted the Chinese coming over here, I believe the Chinese, I'm talking about men in China now, it numbered something like three, four hundred, three to three fifty thousand. Wow, it's a lot of people. Yes, it's an in influx. This, uh, from there onwards, you find every little dopey, as we call it, has a will shop. Have Chinese shops. That's amazing. In fact, I once went to a friend of mine. Uh, she, they had a farm. Her wedding they had a farm in the western area, mm-hmm. and they tell me that the family butcher is Chinese, and the family hardware store is Chinese. So they are every, any and everywhere. And I believe you're going to Free State, every little town there, there are Chinese shopkeepers. 
freedom came for all of us in 19. Eventually. <laughs> yeah, it took a while. Well, uh, Prof, thank you so much. Walter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's our second episode of How's It China? You can join us next week for more, and we hope that this has given you some insight into the Chinese community and their presence in South Africa, their history here. And thank you both for... Go and uh, check it out. I mean, in old Chinatown, there are absolutely. actually plaques on, on some of this. You're talking, you of, you're talking of a new year. Some of the history. You're talking of a new year. Uh, if you want, if you want lots of restaurants, you must go to 13 Chinatown. But if we go for Chinese, uh, fireworks, you must come down to the first Chinatown. Absolutely. The That's where you can follow shop. the dragon. Best fireworks shop. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, we do have some blue plaques explaining Chinese history, which is uh, Johannesburg heritage and the city of Joburg backing these. Um, done in First Chinatown, and uh, and the great like restaurant. Yes, great so restaurant. Yes, we spoke yes. a little bit about food with Jen Su last we week. We talked about food in, last yes. week with Jen Su, and but in in Ferreira's Dorp, just just around the corner from John Foster Square. Wow. In fact, the, that First Chinatown <laughs> was my suggestion because mm. I said there are China, there's Chinatown here, there, and everywhere, <laughs> but this is. I don't like the idea of calling old, even though it's old. Old, old have the concept of being drab. Maybe it is to a certain degree. First, I like that. First, like Chinatown, First Chinatown is a brilliant so you, idea. You now have two places that you have to visit in Johannesburg. And thank you both so much. And thank you, Pums. And um, we will be back with House of China, Episode 3, next week. Thank this you. is House of China with Cliff Central and China Plus. Download the podcast on the Cliff Central website, app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.